You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone and welcome back to Page to Stage, a conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. That's Mary. To put it simply, we're both theater nerds. So let's pull back the curtain and get a glimpse at the artist's process while creating their art. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, my name's Tyler Mount. I'm a Tony and Olivier award-winning theatrical producer, social media ninja, and connoisseur of all things Oprah Winfrey. Thanks for joining us today. I was going to give us like a slow clap for that. Oh, I love that. And I love that. That was great. When I was preparing for this episode, I went on LinkedIn and looked at your LinkedIn. And that is actually oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. what you put on LinkedIn. It is literally my mission statement on my resume. And, and your no exaggeration. Have you ever met Oprah? Um, no, because I'm alive. Um, <laughs> I, I have been very fortunate to meet a lot of celebrities and work with a lot of celebrities in my career. Um, and honestly, Oprah is the only person on earth I would lose my mind. Beyonce, if she came in right now, I would be excited and I would be like thrilled. But like if Oprah was here right now, I would be inconsolable. I'm like <laughs> smiling thinking about it. And I know I That's have great. an Oprah Winfrey addiction and I don't. Because that started we, we in middle school. Like yeah. after school, you'd go home and say, I got to watch Oprah Winfrey Oprah show. raised me. I, I'm an only child from small town Texas. Every single day, I would come home at 4 p.m. on Channel 11 and Oprah would be there and we would hang out. We She'd give away her favorite things and I'd act like I was winning them. Like literally, we're best friends. 
You grew up in Texas. Yes, as small town as small town can get. 300 people, one stoplight, Montgomery, Texas, holla at your boy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Painting a very visual picture here for me. So there was tons of theater in that small town. As you can imagine, tons of theater. Actually, um, you joke, but um, the Montgomery Theater Department is state-renowned. I'm not kidding. Like one of the best high school theater departments in the entire state. Um, while I was there, we um, all twenty kids in the school district. All twenty school, all <laughs> twenty kids in the school district, right? Um, no, every single year I was there, we competed at the state level of competition for one act play, which was the my var- varsity sport of choice, um, and we won that twice. Was a varsity sport? No, I'm I'm oh. messing with you, but <laughs> okay. like that's as varsity sport as I get. Yeah, but ironically, they had a great theater department, and that's where I got my love of the arts. Um, but I could never imagine staying there a day after I graduated. So what did you do after you graduated? So high school was in Montgomery, Texas. Then I knew I wanted to live in Austin. Austin's like the cultural hub of Texas. It's like a little democratic blue island in a sea of red. Um, and the arts community there is absolutely incredible. I got my degree in theater arts with an emphasis in performance, um, and ultimately, I worked as a stage manager and actor in Austin, and then ultimately, right after graduation, made um, the move to New York City. Nice. So what about stage management? So I'm so curious. So what about stage management did you like at the time? Like what like intrigued you about it? Oh my it? God. I mean, like to this day, I still love stage management. If you know me, everything that a stage manager does was literally put on this earth for me to do. I love Broadway. I love being in charge. I love leading a team. I love being type A and having spreadsheets and tracking props and tracking costumes and like tracking entrances and exits. Like that's what I love. But most importantly, I love sitting um, in the booth or sitting at the call desk every night and calling the show. Um, That's an art in itself. And I really, really loved that. Um, And personally, it was so much, ironically, more responsibility, but less pressure for me. Because when I was performing, I was always so stressed about being good enough or um, looking the right way or um, or not losing my voice or like all of these things that performers really have to be um, cognizant of that a stage manager doesn't. Sure, a stage manager works longer hours, gets there first, leaves last. But ultimately, it was a skill set that I was really comfortable with. And it's funny that you said you felt less pressure as a stage manager, considering that you were calling a show and the whole show is essentially on your back. I mean, sure. Like on <laughs> like paper. no pressure. Right. Zero pressure. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, ultimately, yes, more pressure. But a lot of the times in life I've learned that the more pressure you have, um, I don't know, I, I feel more comfortable. I feel more comfortable when there's, a, when there's more pressure. Hmm. Um, and again, it's like, what is the pressure? Like, what is that skill set being used? Like if I had to be the star of a Broadway show and sing the 11 o'clock number every night, that's a lot of pressure too and pressure I don't want to sign up for. I would be a nervous wreck. So ultimately, stage management was how I got my start specifically um, working professionally in the city um, and was like the jumping off point to my career. And so when you – so you were working on on your feet. Yes. When you started the Tyler Mount vlog? Um, yeah, so I had done a, I had done a few shows on Broadway and, um, I ended up working with Gloria and Jerry Mitchell on, on your feet as, uh, 
um, stage management production assistant. And I did the lab and the Chicago tryout and um, the Broadway production up to opening. Long story short, I got really close with um, the creative team there. And during our layoff between Chicago and Broadway, I was like, I love creating content. I want to do something that um, kind of intrigues me and gives me something to do creatively. So I started um, what ultimately ended up being called the Tyler Mount Vlog, mostly because I I didn't think it was going to be as successful as it accidentally was. Um, I would have thought of probably a better name, but um, <laughs> it started it started really nothing to do with Broadway. It was like me and a friend, like either one of you could like come over to my house after we've after we recorded this, drink a bottle of wine, and just like talk on my couch, right? Um, and I did like six episodes and I was doing them for me. Like I really liked doing it. They were so stupid. I knew no one would watch. I wasn't promoting them. I wasn't trying to make a career out of it. Mm. What I year did, was this in? Uh, Just to give some context of like what yeah. the YouTube yeah. industry was like. Um, this was 2014, I would guess. So 2014 and 15. Millions of dollars doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But like that wasn't really my goal at the time. It was just a creative outlet. I knew I was going back to On Your Feet. So um, it obviously wasn't going to be a long-term career, right, by any means. So um, I did a small portion of the Broadway um, run of On Your Feet. Um, and now, like, is that, Just to sidebar a little bit, is that really typical that a PA would go from um, uh, out of town, out of town to, to New York? Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it everything is a case-by-case basis. But yeah. typically... Um, that's typically the case because okay. if a PSM is employing a production assistant, why would they want to retrain someone new when there was genuinely no one on earth who, who could be hired as a PA who knew the show forwards and backwards like I did, knew the creative team, et cetera. Not that anyone on earth couldn't do that job. A lot of people could do that job really well. Um, it was mostly just I had the experience along with three other people who were PAs on the show as well um, working for that specific show. So kind of like I said, it wasn't Broadway. My show wasn't Broadway based at all. It was just my friends. And so at the end of my at the end of my stint at On Your Feet, um, Gloria said, oh, I hear you have a vlog. Can I come on it? And I said, well, obviously, right, if, if you're interested. So literally the next week, her and Emilio were at my house shooting our first real, what people think of like the first real episode of what is now known as the Tyler Mount vlog. Um, and that was the first day I bought real camera equipment. I was working with like a really cheap digital camera. I was like, Gloria Estefan cannot come to my house and see that I'm working on a digital camera stacked on a humidifier box stacked on top of a chair. Like that is, that is embarrassing. So I got brand new equipment, invested in that, um, and kind of like this setup, I was I was doing it out of the living room of my Hell's Kitchen studio apartment, um, and I just basically left a camera setup in my living room for three years. And the rest is kind of history. She did that episode. It kind of went viral overnight, especially in comparison to what I was used to in, in the realm of views. Um, you know, it's... Gloria, the most prolific Latin artist in the history of pop music, talking about her uterus and her placenta and kissing me. And like, um, I say all of that to be like, that's why it went viral. It was like E.T. picked it up, Access Hollywood picked it up. Um, all of these different websites picked it up and created traffic for the video. So ultimately, the rest is history. So that kind of, would you say that that kind of like changed your life in a sense? Oh, I mean, to, Gloria, I say this to her all the time. Gloria is... Not only, like I said, 
um, the most successful Latin crossover artist in the history of music. And I always knew who she was and I always knew of her music, but it wasn't until I worked with her personally that I realized like, oh, no, 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 she's a superstar. Like paparazzi, people screaming at her, throwing mixtapes at her, like that is the level of career she has. And it it wasn't until I worked with her for a long time that I realized, oh, she's also not only wildly talented, but the kindest, most generous human on earth. And I don't say this lightly, but Gloria changed my life and to this day continues to change my life. Um, she has literally picked up the phone and made calls for jobs for me. Um, and she was the reason, one of the many reasons, but she was the first reason why my show was successful. Um, and most recently, whenever On Your Feet was in London and um, I was part of The Inheritance, the Weston production, um, it was a full circle moment. I uh, We can talk about this in a second, but I was walking in to Royal Albert, Albert Hall um, and I'm walking in, technically nominated, and I look to my left and it's Patty Lapone. And Patty was my um, first job on Broadway. Um, and you could tell that she recognized me, but she wasn't like, Tyler, my dear friend, right? Not that she talks like that, but, <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm friends with her son. And so her son was like, oh, mom, you remember Tyler? He did blah, blah, blah. Um, and he, she was like, oh my gosh, yes. And then it wasn't until after we both won that night that I'm at the after party and uh, she looks at me and she's like, oh, we won. And I was like, this is a full circle moment. And then I hear Tyler, baby. That's a really terrible accent. <laughs> um, and I look and it's Gloria and she's like, congrats. Like it was such a full circle moment that I was like, what is my life? I don't know. So yes, the an to answer your question, <laughs> really, really roundabout. Gloria Estefan changed my life and continues to change it to today. Full stop. Do Podcast over. <laughs> no, not. We're just getting started, <laughs> Tyler. Come on. So would you say that starting the Tyler Mountain vlog led you to producing? Was that ever something that you that you like wanted to do on the forefront of your mind? So it's funny because in high school, um, my first job out of high school, I, for whatever reason, I, I didn't remember this until someone asked me a very similar question recently. I wanted to be a film producer. And... Through the strangest turn of events, our assistant theater director's father was a prominent screenwriter in Hollywood who lived in small town Texas Montgomery, right? Like, there was a rumor that Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston lived in Montgomery because they once visited this man in his home in Montgomery. So... I was reading So You Want to Be a Producer, which is a very, very famous book. Um, and right out of high school, I got a job working as a production assistant slash executive assistant for th for this man um, who was instrumental in my career as well. Um, and he worked closely with Tony and Ridley Scott out of L.A. So that was my first job out of high school. And so I always knew I wanted to be a producer. But a lot of the times in life, we don't know how we're going to get there, which is like half of the struggle. It's like a, I'm overwhelmed, especially New York. There's so many options. Um, and it's funny that you realize like, oh, once you just take a breath and you kind of let the universe figure out how you're going to get there, you just have to know where you're getting. Um, things kind of work out. So, so with that being said – I've always wanted to be a theatrical producer. I just didn't know how. And to answer your question, if I hadn't done the Tyler Mount vlog, I would have never gotten the opportunity 
um, I got to do my first Broadway show as a producer. So we had Hunter on the podcast. Yes, who I love. He told us a little bit about how you got involved. But I'm curious as to your side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I, with the exception of the educators I had growing up, I would say that there has been no one more instrumental in my success um, and that I owe more of my success to other than Gloria and Hunter Arnold. Um, Again, if I didn't have the show, I I might have eventually been – um, involved, but it was because of my work at Playbill. Um, it was my work in the theater space, becoming a quote unquote influencer in the theater space and producing digital content, um, that I was initially asked by Hunter and his associate Kayla Greenspan to, um, join this new and exciting initiative that was all about giving underrepresented producers a chance to produce on Broadway. Um, especially when you think about the type of person who is typically producing on Broadway, um, women typically aren't doing that. People of color are certainly not doing that. Um, believe it or not, a lot of gay LGBTQIA identifying people are not producers on Broadway. Um, and also young people aren't producers on Broadway. And that creates a systemic issue in the entire community. If producers who are at the very, very, um, foundation of what is being produced on Broadway. And they decide the creative team who is telling that story and the lens in which we see it. It creates an issue of the stories that are chosen to be told and how they're being told. So Hunter's entire vision was we need to redefine who is producing and consequently redefine what it is to be a producer and the work that's being produced on Broadway. So cut to Tyler, you're influencing on Broadway. You have a digital series. You're known throughout the community and you're have a 101, you are on a first name basis with most of the talent, most of the creative direct, you know, like the creative teams, um, press reps, agents, et cetera, just because of my work um, on the series and at Playbill. Um, would you be interested in coming on board? And I say this all the time in my life, but whenever I'm presented with an opportunity, unless it makes me feel icky, I will always, always, always say yes, because I don't think it's coincidental that a man, Hunter Arnold, who I'd never met or heard of in my entire life, I obviously had seen all of his you work. You'd never met him. I've never met him in my life. Oh. I'd never heard of Kayla Greenspan. And cut to Kayla sending me an email. I was like, hey, um, would you be interested in producing this new show we're doing, this new revival we're doing of Once on this Island? And I said, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never produced anything in my life, certainly not at a Broadway caliber. Um, and then my mind starts going, well, like, you're an idiot. You're stupid. You, who says that you can be a producer? You have no right to do this. Um, but against my better judgment, I said yes. And it was uh, just an email, just as, like yeah. the way that you said it. It yeah. wasn't like, hey, let's get coffee and let's, or let's have a meeting. It was just like a hey. It was literally like Kayla emailed me and said, hey, I'm working with executive producer Hunter Arnold. Um, we like the work you're doing in the theater community. We're thinking about doing – not thinking about. We're starting an under underrepresented producers initiative, um, and we want to help you from the ground floor up learn how to become a producer so that you can do this on your own. Um, and I was like, if given that opportunity, why would I ever in a million years turn that down? Because at the end of the day, you can, I guess, study to be a producer. I bet there's some college on earth who has a producing class. I don't know. I certainly haven't heard of one, but I bet there's somewhere on earth you can do that. But at the end of the day, it 
it's a practical skill. It is something that you have to do and learn how to do. And it is an art form, just like acting is in a very different way. And what I loved about what Hunter was saying about the program is that it was kind of in stages, right? So like for Once in Asylum, he was really helping you. He offered to go to certain meetings with you, to, like talking through the process of getting investors. Yeah. And so like, that's why I say Hunter was so instrumental in my career. Ultimately, it kind of works in stages unofficially. Um, because what stage are you in? Um, I'm like stage graduated at okay. this point. Yeah. Um, for multiple reasons. A, I, I know that I always have Hunter and Kayla to go to if I have specific questions, because believe me, in any new show you do, you will always have a specific question that hasn't been applicable before. And I know that they're a lifeline for that. Um, but ultimately, after you do four shows with them, you ultimately, unofficially, graduate out of the program simply because I now have the skills in order to do this quote unquote alone. But most importantly, there's someone else on earth who needs that education more than I do. Um, and I don't feel, although it would be easy, I don't feel right taking that opportunity for someone else because I desperately needed that opportunity and would have been irritated if someone was on their 18th show. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so initially you go into the program and it's obviously at will. You have to show up, go to the meetings, d do all of the, for lack of a better term, like coursework associated with it. It's not like Hunter just giving you a producer credit and being like, I'll do the work. How did this fit in with your life at the time? LOL. I mean, like, like, I like time commitment wise, yeah, all mean, that like, kind of stuff. In life, you will always make time for things that are important to you, whether that is producing on top of something else, whether that's a relationship on something on top of something else, whether that is having a social life on top of something else, whatever it may be, you will always find time. I've always been the person who loves go, go, going. I always have. I always will. Um, and so me doing Playbill and producing on top, me working at NBC and producing on top was never a conflict of interest um, or really an issue. It was, I like doing these two things and no matter what where my career takes me, they will both like co-mingle in the same space and they both help each other. So the first, I guess the first stage is he took about, I'm making these numbers up, but about 10 young producers. And let's be clear, this underrepresented producer initiative is not about young people, right? It's about people who are underrepresented. And sure, a lot of those people are young, right? But you, you don't have to be young to be a part of this collective. You can be a 65-year-old woman of color. Like you are just as unrepresented as me, right? If not more. Actually, I would argue you're much more underrepresented on the Broadway stage than I am as a young producer. Um, so you go into your first stage, which is basically, to your point, Hunter and or his associate Kayla walking you through everything. Like I didn't know what a co-pro agreement was. I didn't know how to read um, a P&L. I didn't know anything other than I had worked with producers on Broadway as a stage manager before, period, full stop. And it's them walking you through the entire contract, answering questions, understanding the very basic concepts of how producing works. I had no idea what a producer did. I had no idea how they made money. I had no idea how investors made money. Um, and it's just learning that specific skill set. So they're there. I would take investor phone calls with people in my um, my Rolodex, I guess, for lack of a better <laughs> antiquated term. <laughs> um, I was like flipping through my Rolodex. Um, and the first few calls, 
I just sat there and Hunter would be like, hey, um, thanks for jumping on a call with me. Here's once on this island. This is what is unique about it. This is why it might be a good fit for you. This is why it might not be a good fit for you. Um, this is how we do it. Um, and then afterwards we would debrief and then um, cut to the chase. Ultimately, I closed um, enough investors to be – with Hunter's help, of course, build above the title for once on this island. Um, and for the Tony season, I knew we would be nominated simply because there were three of us. So like <laughs> there was really no competition. Um, but I, and this isn't me being humble. I knew we wouldn't win. Um, I knew we wouldn't win just because of the competition and every single publication called the winner as a show other than ours. And that was fine. I was a first time producer nominated for the Tonys. I had been multiple times before, but never as a quote unquote nominee. And sitting there when they, when they announced that Once on this Island won and I had won a Tony. Um, for your first Broadway show my as first a producer. Broadway show, yeah. That was the most out of body experience to me. And making it full, taking a full circle is then for my next show that I did with Hunter, um, it was a lot easier to get investors simply because I was able to say like, oh, um, I'm a Tony winner and yeah. I know what I'm doing. Um, and if I, I always operated from the point of, if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I'm not going to try to act like I do. I'm the first to be like, hey, look, I'm brand new at this, but I'm going to reach out to Hunter and I'll have an answer for you in 12 hours, right? And that's kind of how I operated. So the second show, it was me really, really focusing with Hunter, getting the skills necessary to pitch the show myself, answer the questions myself with Hunter there in the room to be like um, – that's actually not accurate or yeah, absolutely to piggyback on what Tyler's saying X, Y, and Z. Can you walk us through the process of trying to raise the funds? Because, you know, I was reading a bunch of articles and they say one in every five Broadway musicals recoups its money. So when you're trying to ask people for their money, only one in five of them are going to get it. Mm, you know, they're going to get it back. Right. They're going to only one in five or one in six are going to recoup that initial investment. So, um, the more you produce, the easier it gets, not only to pitch, but most importantly, to have a larger pool of investors who like different things, right? So my first show, Once on this Island, I, I was the smallest amount of capital I had to raise, right? In probably what will ever be the history of my career, right? It's the smallest amount I will ever have to raise. So so there's a threshold to be a build above the title. Yes, absolutely. And it's based on what the show's it's based on budget. many, many things. And I came in under Hunter, obviously. Um, but it's it's based on many things. But yes, there is a threshold in order to be billed above the title. So it's not like a mandated thing on... No, it's not it's like... per production. Yes, it's yeah. not like on Broadway, you have to raise $500,000 to be above the title. That's not essentially how it works. So um, the more shows you do, the easier it becomes. Uh, for Once on this Island, the lowest amount I'll probably ever have to raise for a show... Um, took me, I'm not kidding, the, until the day before previews or the, like, I'm talking about like it was the night before. And how far of a pre-production period did you have where you were starting with Hunter? Um, I, I'm going to estimate probably around 60 to 90 days, which is luxurious in the realm of time. Really? Yes. So I, I was like, I, this is my first show. I'm not going to make the threshold. I'm a failure. I'm going to to lose. I'm I my You took it as a failure. Yeah, absolutely. At, even though it was your first time. Yeah. I knew that if I didn't raise this money, I was gonna be a failure. I mean, all of my investors would still have had, you know, stake in the show, like, but I wouldn't have been above the title. I wouldn't have been eligible for award season. I wouldn't have 
put that on my resume, right? As a producer. So I already had accepted defeat last minute. Angel investor come through to pull me about the title. Fantastic. My next show that I raised for was, I believe, I'm trying to think because they went into a different order. The next show that I raised for was Hades Town, actually. Um, and believe it or not, I had to raise, um, I had to raise more money for Hades Town, obviously, and I raised that in 72 hours. Great. Because people were like, and was this for the for West End or no 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 I didn't do the West End production. Okay okay. Was this um, from uh, this is for just for the Broadway run? Yeah, this is the okay. Broadway run, um, and that took maybe seventy two hours. Now, do you think that that could be because it had a nice trail before it at New York Theater Workshop um, and at the National? Yeah. So the answer is yes. It didn't hurt that it was Hades Town, but also at the same time, um, you were now a Tony winner. Yes. And be, and beyond that, I had mastered the skills of the pitch. Hmm. Um, and I, I don't think there are any trade secrets. I will always share the way I do something, not that it is the right way to do something. Um, but I always like to operate, as everyone should, from an ethical perspective. Most importantly, I'm very loyal. So the first people to have ever invested in me, right, and my show, Once on This Island, will always, for eternity, get first right of refusal to every – not legal first right of refusal. I'm not required to do this by law, but will always get first right of refusal to my next production. And then so on, so on, so on. So I literally have a list of the first person to ever invest down to the 30th person to invest. And when I know that something's coming up, I will say, tomorrow at noon, I'll send you an offering at noon. First come, first serve. And then I will go to number two on the list 15 minutes later. And so it becomes like, does it become like less of a formal yeah. pitch? It just is like, here's this thing. This is me. This is what we're doing. Yes. Okay. The first time was very formal. The second time was like, hey, I have Hades Town. Um, it it's done X number of streams on Spotify. Um, we did Canada. We did. Um, we're doing West End right now, and we're bringing it to Broadway. It has the potential to be nominated for Best Musical. I could see it winning. Um, but most importantly, it's me, and it's my next show. Right? Um, 72 hours. My next show was um, The Inheritance West End. And so you're not raising in excess of what you're no, you're hoping to get. The exact opposite. You cannot raise. If you are asked to raise $500,000, you cannot raise $525,000. That money is allotted to someone else. If you think about it, it's like... Because it's the whole budget of the production, yeah, and that's how they're allocating things. It's like if you want... If investors wanted to come in now to Hamilton, they couldn't. Why? Because it's already been raised for. But most importantly, you can't raise $1 billion for a $12 billion... Excuse me, a $12 million show. That's not that's not how finances work, right? So ultimately, I'm creating a demand. And I say, first come, first serve. Then I'll have people say, I want two units. And then I'll reply to the entire thread that says, two units have been allocated for five remaining, eight remaining, 10 remaining, however it may be. Um, and then that went very quickly. But most recently, whenever I did The Inheritance on Broadway, um, I sold every unit in less than three hours. Just because I had now won two Tonys and Olivier, a drama league. Um, and I was like, I'm not kidding. This show won the Olivier in the West End. But most importantly, I think it's the most important piece of theater I'll ever do in my career. Um, and like, it's in my unofficial opinion, it's like Pulitzer winning, you know? So you can be involved if you want. If you don't, that's totally fine. So ultimately, I always break down my investors in three categories. You either, I'm selling one of three things. 
I am selling something to a very close friend or family member, a very, very small number, um, who will invest in a show because it's me, right? I, as a producer, am valuable enough to them, even if they lose all of their money in this very exotic um, luxury investment, right? At least they did it for me. Very uncommon. Number two is someone who is buying experience, right? To someone who's worked on Broadway for a very long time, the idea of going to opening night and taking a photo with the star is not appealing to me. Like, actually, I would rather be anywhere other than there. Um, the idea of going to the Tony Awards and sitting through the broadcast is very glamorous to people. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy it, I love it, but it, the best place to watch it is on your television, right? And then they are buying experience. It's you can purchase one or two units and come to opening as my guest and then be eligible to buy tickets if it's nominated for the Tonys and walk the quote unquote red carpet with me. That is the type of experience that a lot of people are looking for. And then number three, which I would say at least in in my investor pool, um, is the third person who is solely looking for financial gain, right? Just like someone who is investing in the stock market. And that's why you have to be able to turn on your business acumen and be able to say, yeah, absolutely. I understand the fact that one in six shows recoup on Broadway, but ultimately here is why this project I think will, but most importantly, if it doesn't, why this show is good for you. And then you also can approach it from a very, very statistical viewpoint. It's yes, one in six, one in five musicals recoup on Broadway. But did you know if you invested blindly across 10 shows, you make more money on Broadway than you do in the stock market? So when people come to you and are like, I have a, this has personally never happened to me, but if someone comes to you and says, I have $500,000 for your next show, a responsible producer, not that you're irresponsible if you don't do this, but in my eyes would say, let's do 50,000 across 10 shows. That gets you opening night seats typically to every show. You get 10 times the experience. And I can almost statistically, although not legally, I can almost statistically guarantee you, you're going to make more money than you would putting that $500,000 in the stock market, right? Five out of six shows, you won't make your money back. But the two that you do will pay for your entire investment. So it's really approaching your producer where they're at and what type of producer they are. So the investors aren't necessarily in it for the craft or the art. Would you say that? Um, no, I mean, like, a, the, the very simple answer is no, right? There are a lot of investors that I work with who are there because they love the arts. Their children participate in the arts. They participated in the arts. Um, they want to give back to the arts in a new, ex exciting way other than donating to a nonprofit theater. It's like, I can be a part of something bigger. I can be a part of Broadway. I can work at the pinnacle of the industry and also get the quote-unquote perks that come along with that. So I would say it really is 50-50. It's 50% 50 of my investors love that, but the other 50 are solely here to make profit. And the producer really never gets credit. Hunter always says this, that if you make the investor money, like my investors on Town are so excited, right? But it's because they picked a good show, right? My investors on, let's say, like Frankie and Johnny, right, which didn't have such box office success as Town did, are... Uh, this isn't entirely true, but we're probably irritated because I asked them to invest in it, right? So it's literally like- Do you ever get any kickback? Um, no. You know what? No. And I don't get kick. I don't get kickback, um, mostly because, and a lot of producers do, but mostly because I am so wildly, 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 wildly clear and transparent from the beginning. You have 
a five in six chance you will never see this money again. You have a one in six shot that you will. At the end of the day, you have to have the amount of discretionary income where if you write this check, not to me, let's be clear, you're not giving me any money. You're investing in this show that I happen to be associated with. Because you're only making money if, if the production recoups coops. and starts and, making money. Yes, exactly. So I'm like, let's be clear. You're not doing anything for me. I'm giving you this opportunity. And if it doesn't feel 100% right to you, then like, let's not do it. Let's wait till show number two, right? That happens to a lot of investors. And I think a lot of investors ultimately work with you because they respect that. So looking at your your credits, basically, and all the shows that you've worked on, this can include the shows where you were state, like in the stage management office as well. What kind of story do you want to tell from a theatrical standpoint? Well, it's funny. I think producing is wildly different than stage managing in the sense that the story I wanted to tell as a stage manager was any job that would pay me, period, full stop. It could also be where you were in your own life. Yeah, I, right? oh, oh, yeah, sure. I, it literally was like, if a stage manager was offering, offering me a position, I was going to take it, especially at the Broadway level, period. I was working as a waiter part-time. Why would I ever turn down a Broadway job? That is like completely me being transparent. I got on to Once on Your Feet because I'd worked with a production stage manager prior in a reading, um, and we really liked each other. And so he brought me on board to On Your Feet. It was happenstance me becoming friends with Gloria, happenstance. But as a producer, you really can pick and choose your projects. Obviously, my career didn't start that way. Hunter and Kayla didn't call me and say, choose a Broadway show and produce it. Like, it happened to be once on this island. But ironically, it matched all of the things that I now look for as a producer. I know that unfortunately, although I like to think this isn't the case, Broadway theater would continue to exist without me, right? I would hope that it would be very sad and devastated, but it would still happen without me. However, the story that I want to tell is a story that might not happen or happen so easily without me. A very clear example is I want to tell the stories that typically aren't told on Broadway. So if it is Once on This Island about an empowered woman of color, right, that is not being produced by all straight white men over the age of 65. That's important to me. Um, a two-part gay saga called The Inheritance, right, that redefines what it is to be gay in America and the world today. That's important to me. Doing Audra's um, Frankie and Johnny, the first time it was um, interracially cast, right, without it being about interracial casting. That was important to me. Um, and am I missing something? Oh, Hadestown. Hi. Hadestown. Um, very, very gender neutral, a wildly diverse um, company and Female ensemble. creative team. Hello. Like, that is the part of theater that I want to um, really be involved in. And even most recently off-Broadway, I worked on a show called Oscar at the Crown, which was um, – something that uh, you couldn't have paid me to go see, much less produce. And then I went to go see it and I was like, LOL, LOL, LOL. This is the most fun and best thing I've seen in forever. Um, basically, the life of Oscar Wilde set to an iconic EDM pop score, like in a gay club in the back of Brooklyn. Like you couldn't pay me. And I saw it and I was like, this is life-changing. I have to do this. Um, and again, it wasn't about the money. It was about... I want to produce this and be a part of something bigger than myself. And so all queer, non-gender conforming um, 
actors, like the most incredible, palpable energy every night in that show. So like ultimately, that's the type of show that I want to be a part of. So when we had Hunter on, he explained that when you're brought onto a project, not you specifically, Tyler, but when you're brought onto a project as a producer, you may be brought on for a specific skill set that you can lend yourself to the production, right? And and they're going to utilize you for that specific skill set. Um, so a lot of your work has been in digital media sh- strategizing uh, more recently. And do you think that that's something that would get you brought onto a project nowadays? Or what do you think is your biggest uh, skill set that you have to offer some production? Yeah, absolutely. I, without a question of a doubt, like Hunter will be the first to tell you. Hunter and I in a room are unstoppable. This man knows finances and business forwards and backwards and can run circles around the best in the industry. I know digital marketing, performance marketing, social media strategy after my career, not only on Broadway as a content producer, not only on Broadway as someone who worked in video production at the most successful legacy brand on Broadway, aka Playbill, and now having just um, finished my time at NBC um, as head of digital marketing for their content commerce team, ultimately that all blends together to make me literally... I can't imagine a person who loves Broadway more than I do, who also has a digital media skill set, right? Um, so, so I say all that humbly to answer your question. Yes, I would be brought on specifically for like marketing strategy, digital marketing strategy, social strategy, um, because Broadway is very much so. Anyone who even works in who anyone who works in the creative industry on Broadway will be the first to tell you Broadway lags easily 15 years. We are doing things today that people in new media media were doing 15 years ago. The idea like, oh, we're going to start doing banner ads. Like we are at the point like no one on earth utilizes banner ads. They're considered ad trash in the real world. Like spam. Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't click that. People don't read it. And the conversion rate is less than 0.01%. Like, let's fathom that. But we're spending tens of thousands of dollars on banner ads. I'm targeted. Right. I am oh, oh my targeted God. for those I am those targeted. Ads. They're like, oh my gosh, a white gay male who lives in New York City, he must love Broadway. <laughs> he and I'm like, must click, click, love click. musicals. Right, absolutely. So, Which I do. Right, me which too. Which we do. Which we both do, which I love about us. But um, ultimately, I have always been a person to break the status quo, to not do things because that's the way they are done, not because that's the way we've always done them. Um, so ultimately, I really like to lend myself to some sort of digital strategy and social media strategy and how we can redefine and recreate what it is to be a Broadway production. So I want to talk about this strategy then. Can we dive into this? Sure, so, of course. And I kind of want to shift towards your time at Playbill and NBC and your future surprise gig. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited about that. Um, so because those things are not necessarily for a Broadway show. I mean, Playbill might be, but... That's neither here nor there. So what kind of strategy are you looking for? What kind of um, new media for for the this industry are you looking at when you're talking about social media and digital media? Right. That's a very, very large convoluted question, but I'll answer it to the best of my ability. So um, I left – so I worked at Playbill for a long time, and right when I was leaving, they were getting, um, you know – more digitally focused and they were taking on more outside advertisers who were digitally focused as well and they were doing more digital buys. Um, And ultimately, I left Playbill to pursue a career at NBC 
um, for many reasons, but the number one reason was because I looked at it as an investment in my future. I knew that I could leave Playbill and get the best education of my life working for arguably, um, working with arguably the largest budget I would ever see in my life um, for the world's leading media conglomerate, right? That and ABC. So um, it was never an end all be all, but it was definitely looked at as an education process. So and, and that it was. So um, whenever I'm looking at social media strategy, the first thing to do is very basic, but it's to identify the audience. Your, your strategy is going to be wildly different based on how you have to reach people and where you have to reach them. So when you're looking at a show, you have to look at the built-in demographic. There's always that center epicenter of um, – I guess I'll call it like the built-in audience, right? This idea that we're doing Darevin Hansen on Broadway. Um, there's a core buyer who's going to see the show no matter what it is. Why? Because they're a New York City theater goer. Then you have the ring around that, which are um, fans of the show who are built in now. But then outside of that, the hardest thing to do in any type of marketing strategy and specifically on Broadway is shows that are that are really served to their core demographic don't succeed on Broadway. Why? Because we have to cater to what I like to unofficially call donut equity. The idea that like we have the epicenter of Broadway and then we have to cater to the equity outside of the built-in audience. So who are those people? They're tourists, right? That's why a great show like Beautiful does really, really well because when you're standing in the TKTS line, if there's not Tony Buzz like Hadestown or Hamilton or Darren Hansen has, what show are they going to purchase? It's going to be something that they're familiar with, that they're comfortable with, um, and that they've heard about. So it's how can we target this built – excuse me, how can we target the members of this donut equity, a technical term, um, and – cater to them because those are the people that keep your show open, which as a producer and as an investor you want, right? You can do really, really great numbers your first six months, but it, you still haven't recouped the show. So that's what's really important. So once you identify your audience, who we're trying to target, it's then trial and error. It's creating a lot of content. And you hear time and time again that content is king. Content drives every person's buying decisions today. And that is how we have to really kind of affect change in any type of genre, specifically musical theater. So you think about video content becoming more and more popular. You have, especially with the advent of shows like Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton, that was really the huge turning point in social media, not only because Jeremy Hansen centers around it, but it was because we could affect massive change digitally like we hadn't proven out historically on Broadway. So uh, it's all about now. It's all about social video content. Um, I always like to say, why do I love social? What is the purpose of social? It's all about engaging and accessibility. How can I make not only the 12-year-old in the middle of Ohio feel like they're connected to this show, but then how can I get their parents to purchase the ticket, right? Which is always the biggest, I guess, chasm. It's at the end of the day, if I was doing digital content for Dervin Hansen, I know that I don't really have to cater to the 12-year-old who's obsessed with the show. They will love the show no matter what. But at the end of the day, that 12-year-old doesn't have a credit card to purchase a ticket. And to keep me in business and to keep my ad agency or uh, my investors in business, quote-unquote, um, I have to get someone to actually convert and purchase that ticket. So it's all trial and error. It is us doing four different campaigns, what we call A-B testing, but in this case, A-B-C and D testing, um, and figuring out what works best. Because I will always tell my team that, Look, I think I have great taste. Everyone in um, the arts thinks they have great taste. Anyone in a creative field thinks they have great taste. Um, 
But at the end of the day, what really defines great taste? It's the analytics that power our decisions as marketers and creators. So at the end of the day, we have to look at the analytics that power our decisions. And I am unbiased. I take myself out of it because there have been so many times in my career, whether it was Playbill or NBC or even my show, where I was like, oh, this is incredible. It's going to be the best performing thing ever. And it doesn't perform. And you have to humbly take a step back and realize, oh, why is that the case? Right? And so you just learn from the analytics and you reiterate until you have a formula for that exact instance, for that exact show and that exact period of time that works. And then you recreate it in a year and it won't work. So it's all trial and error and judging by analytics. Your day job for the last two years has not been directly in the theater industry, right? The, the exact opposite. I didn't, right. I didn't do anything in the theater so, industry. Yeah. So what I'm so interested in is somebody who went to school for performance. How did you approach going into another industry with a degree in theater arts? Um, and what challenges did you face? Yeah, I mean, like the the biggest challenge I would say is that my skill set was never formally in sell sales or digital marketing or anything that I was working with the top echelon of people in New York City who do this for a living. Um, but again, I I really looked at it as a more learning experience. The idea that if I can take a step back and I'm speaking kind of in hyperbole here, but if I can successfully market something for the golf channel, something I um, was passionate about because I liked my job but have zero interest in golfing, I could then imagine what I could do if I took it back. Oh, my gosh, and had mm. to market company. Like, sign me up, right? So I really think it was wildly beneficial because it was something that I didn't have built in interest in that I learned to take interest in. How did you get people to take you seriously and and give you those chances if you didn't have, you know, that background to back you up? Um, I have a really, really sad answer um, that someone helped you. No, 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 oh, no, no. Okay. I'm, I mean, like, sure, a lot of people have helped me in my career, but I would say I was taken seriously from my first day because I had a Tony Award. And I know that's really... So you're saying that the theater industry means something outside of the theater industry? I don't know industry? about that, but my, my EVP did love introducing me as his new creative who had a Tony Award, right? Oh, okay. Although, let's be clear, that didn't help me at all. Like, do the job, you're absolutely saying? Absolutely not. Yeah, of course. So it, it was all... You didn't, like, prop the Tony no, up no, no, on the no, desk? No, I didn't. And, and just rubbed it every Really passive-aggressively. I'm like, hi, I'm Tyler. Nice to meet you. And put it on the desk. No. Um, I say... To answer your question, like honestly, was like that was a huge thing, um, which I don't think is completely right. It, it has nothing to do with my skill set in that job. It's not like the Tony is for best digital marketing for the Golf Channel. So, um, but beyond that, it was me showing up every day and trying my hardest and learning and being the first to be like, look, I don't know the answer to that, but like I'll figure it out. And I did. That is where I got the education that I now have today. I think it's also very interesting because we have a few listeners at least who have spoken up to us. And they've said that they're in school for something or they feel that they're in school for something that they don't necessarily want to pursue as a career or they're interested in something else that they're not currently studying in school, which I feel like is very on brand for what you've experienced. It's definitely what I experienced. Like, I'm not doing what I went to school for. Like, I'm not in a library, like reading English literature. <laughs> Correct. Um, I think what I what I think is really interesting there is. If you are passionate about anything on earth, period, right, and you pursue it relentlessly and you don't lose track of your goal 
I'm not talking about knowing how you're going to get there because on earth, we just don't know how that's going to happen. And a lot of the times your dreams change and that is also fine, I've learned. I think what is most remarkable is, especially young people ask me all the time, well, how do I do what you're doing? And I say, I uh, I wish I could. I ask that question to so many people and the answer is never like, oh, go to school for it and apply to these four jobs and you'll get it. Like that's not how it works. Most stage managers on Broadway didn't start as stage managers. Um, most producers didn't start as producers. Very few directors were like, I'm going to be a director. Like Jerry Mitchell was a chorus boy and that is what he did. And now he is a very, very successful hit maker. So um, I say all of that to be like, you just have to know that things are going to work out. You just don't have to know how, right? Um, and that, it, like you said, it's okay if along the journey, you kind of, you know, go off to the right a little bit. Yes, that is a perfect example. But even the idea of like going off to the right is never is going off to the right. It is the path, right? You're what always do, centering yeah. your path, yeah. right? Um, because if things change, like that's okay. Yeah, what I think really applies to that is I saw a quote recently in uh, – in so many words, it said, you wouldn't be stressed out about where you are today if you knew what was coming, right? The idea that if we only took a deep breath and was like, and we're like, like high school Tyler or college Tyler was like, well, if I am not on Broadway as a, as the star, then I will be not successful, right? And, it, and I've achieved everything I wanted by the time I was 30, then I... I ever thought possible, right? And it, it wasn't until I took a deep breath and said, I'm gonna I'm gonna go where the world is leading me and where I feel um safe and right. Does that make sense? Because growing up as a performer, I always felt like I wasn't supposed to be there. I felt like I wasn't good enough. Um going to, you know, 13 auditions a week was brutal. I I did 32 final callbacks for one, like, I'm not kidding, over the course of two years, 32 final callbacks, me and one other person, for one of um, Broadway's biggest shows. Um, and it wasn't- Oh, that a, was for a singular show. Yeah, what? For what? One one show you're saying? Yes, for one singular show, I went in over the course of 32 times over the course of those two years, right? Um, and I never booked it. And they called me in for every role in the ensemble, and they were like, you're great for the show, we just don't know where. And on my 32nd callback, a la Devil Wears Prada, I said, totally understand. You can call me when you're ready to put me in the show. I had done every track six times. They knew I could do it. I just wasn't perfect for the role. And that's how the industry works. And that's fine. I, I was never upset about it. But it wasn't until I took a breath and was like, this doesn't feel right, that I was able to then literally the next week start as a stage manager. So it wasn't like it wasn't until I just freed my mind until to open up to the possibilities that like my career started to like move and, sh and shift and change. So what's next? Um, so, I mean, it's again, just like, I, I kind of hate that question, but I'm also just curious because I feel like you do so much and it's like almost hard to keep up with you sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's a horrible question to ask somebody in this industry. Yeah. I would no, say that, um, that is a horrible well, question to ask people. Like, okay. No, I, meant, like, no, 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 I, know, I can well, answer it. Well, no, but like, what do you want? Like, what, like, what do you want to be doing? Because you feel like you keep setting the bar, you keep setting the bar, things keep changing for you. Yeah, I would say I would say one great thing about my personality, which is also the worst thing about my personality, is I'm never satisfied. So like, I'll like get down from the stage of the Tony Awards and be like, okay, what's next? I feel like a loser. Like, and that's my own personal stuff I have to deal with. Um, but I left NBC um, at the um, at the end of December in a very very fantastic 
mutually agreed upon timing and everything. It was fantastic. It was it was um, one of the best learning experiences. Um, and I was dabbling, like, do I go back to Broadway? Do I work back in media? Do I go back to another industry I've worked in? Um, and again, the stars aligned. Um, and I just accepted a role as director of digital at um, one of the city's most prominent real estate developers, um, which is like completely random. But ironically, full circle, my first job while I was in college was a luxury real estate executive assistant. The last house we sold was still Lance Armstrong, right? So it, and I'm licensed in New York City and Texas. So it was kind of like kismet. It kind of just like all made sense at the right time. It wasn't hard. It was like, it just kind of all worked out. So to answer your question, I will always, 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 always be a pioneer and champion of any brand or any team of people looking to innovate, break the status quo when it comes to digital content. And then the next iteration of what digital content becomes, because eventually digital content won't exist and something else that we can't imagine right now will exist. And I hope to be innovating whatever that is. But at the end of the day, I do what I do ultimately to um, ultimately to be able to make meaningful change in the theater, if that makes sense. So if if anyone told me like, oh, you can have this new job, but you couldn't be a part of the theater community, then that's a deal breaker to me, right? I do what I do to become better at what I do so that I can do what I love, which is theater. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter where I am. I always hope to be um, a digital marketer and tastemaker and supporter of the Broadway and greater arts community in any way that I can. We always ask our guests as a final question, what was the last great piece of theater that you saw? Oh, that's good. Um, well, I feel really guilty because it's my show, but- Don't feel guilty. Um, Don't, I'm it's hoping- so, It's so- um, The last show I, I I saw that I was like, uh, also it's kind of like a lull in theater right now. We're about to start picking up with all the new shows coming, so I'll probably have a different answer. But um, it was- uh, It was opening night of Inheritance. Um, that was the last piece I was like, oh- my God. And I'd seen it in the West End. I'd read it. Like nothing was shocking to me. I knew what was coming. But sitting in the audience, watching The Inheritance, which is a coming of age, two-part gay drama, an epic, right? That is seven hours long. Like being in that audience with people of all ages, right? Spanning every gender, spanning every sexual orientation, um, and seeing it all impact people very similarly. We're talking about like grown women sobbing and heaving uncontrollably during intermission, not able to stand. Like I have, n I cannot remember a time I've been in a theater where the, where the feeling of a show is so incredibly palpable. Um, and that's what the inheritance is. It's wildly personal to me, not only because I'm one of the producers, but because the same way I imagine that the previous generation felt about angels in America. I feel about the inheritance. Like there's a scene where they are, they're living um, on the night of um, the election, this last election when Hillary Clinton lost. Um, and I had a moment where I was like, this is the first time I really feel myself being represented on stage. And I know that's not true historically when you look at like a white gay male on Broadway, like it's happened. Um, but I will say like in a very real moment where I was like, oh, no, 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 that happened to me. I remember crying on the floor 
seeing the election results. Do you know? And like what that's how that scared me as a gay male. So, um, and, and the end of part one is, uh, one of, I'm not kidding. And I just got chills now. Just, I literally am so dramatic and I am so gay and I love defying gravity. It has always, will always be Uh. the (laughs) best end of act one of any musical in the history of the world. I remember watching it the first time and grabbing the two people next to me, one being my mother and the other being a stranger and gasping when Elphaba flew. P.S. If you haven't seen Wicked yet, spoilers, I really don't care at this point. You're late. Um, and to this day, I will sit in the theater and I, I will see, I, I I will watch the show and I will still gasp and I will grab my pearls and I'll be like, she is fine. She is defying gravity. Like literally a, 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 the best end of act one, Right. And I would argue that the end of Act One, the end of Part One for the inheritance, is the single most moving moment in theatrical history. And I, I'm biased, and everyone may agree or disagree, but you should go see it in well, order good thing to it's just not the Act One finale. So you can still say Defying Gravity is the best Act One finale. Yes, the oh, end of the inheritance oh. is, the, is the best. Part, part one, one finale. But Harry Potter is pretty good too. But oh it is. Hashtag keep the secrets. But what I will say is Inheritance moved me more than any other mm. show in the history of the world. Beautiful. Me I like agree. ugly crying. So go see it for a good pick me up. <laughs> and a good rom-com. A good seven hours. <laughs> and how can our listeners follow you on social media and all that kind of stuff? Or just what, what, say what can hi. they go see? Can they what say can they go see to support your work? Oh my God, I love that. So, um, Coming from Mr. Social Media, I ironically don't use social media anymore because it was exhausting to me. Um, But I would always say that you can follow me all year long on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter at Tyler G. Mount. Yeah, keep keep Um, gathering those followers. Yeah, absolutely. Just like follow me if you want. Um, And MarqueeChannel.com has all of my YouTube videos. Um, But most importantly, um, not that it, you know, not that. I get a paycheck, really, but like I would love for you to go and support the shows that I'm fortunate enough to be associated with, Hades Town, um, The Inheritance, um, and some fun new projects coming down the pipeline. So, cool, well, cool. Well, thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks, so Thanks for much. having me. Bye. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.